just to start just by thanking Mike for that video. That was, that was pretty cool, right? I, uh. You know, as, as we gather together to worship this morning, it's not just the video that's neat, but you might have also noticed the, the, the readings this morning. And, and Armin, thank you so much for reading the, the, the creation story for us. Um, you know, as we go through that story, sometimes, though, that, that other the parable of Jesus where, you know, the word is sharing and then Satan comes and, and takes up those on the path and, and other weeds choke up stuff. As you're listening to, to God's word being read in a very amazing way by Armin this morning, don't you get a picture of that a little bit as you're straining to, to focus? Some of it just goes right away because Satan picks it right up. Some of us start thinking about other things. It means it gets choked out. And it just shows you that worship is a participatory sport, right? So you have to, to focus and, and hear what it is that God wants to share with you in the morning. You know, as we take a look at this, today I want to focus as we continue on in this strain of thought. I want to continue by taking a look at one of Jesus' most famous miracles, which is the feeding of the 5,000. And as you take a look at this, what's interesting about this miracle is that there are most likely far more than 5,000 people there that day. The Bible says that there were 5,000 men, which as you take a look at it, usually if there's 5,000 men, there's probably 5,000 women, and maybe another 5,000, 10,000 kids there as well. And so when you take a look at this, this whole story, there could have been up to 15,000, 20,000 people there that day. So when Jesus took this little boy's lunch, he was able to feed way more than we could ever imagine in one place. It was by far one of the most well-known miracles of Jesus' tenure because everybody saw it happen. Fifteen to 20,000 people saw that day what transpired. They had no food, and all of a sudden they had all that they could possibly eat. And yet there's one thing about Jesus is that he never did a miracle just to show off. Jesus always did miracles to teach us something, to try to point us towards something, that he, a greater truth that he was trying to get across. And so what we find in this story, is in, this, in this miracle, is that we have a story of how to have a miracle in our own life. How many of you guys have ever needed a miracle in your own life? Everybody here has had, needed a miracle. They needed something healed. They needed a, a good result to happen. They've, there's always been something that's been beyond our control, beyond our ability to, to kind of manufacture the result. And so all of us have gone to God in prayer. And so why is this important? Because of all of us are going to need another miracle in our life in the days to come. In fact, you may need one right now. It could be a financial miracle, a health miracle, a relational miracle in your family, with your kids, with your husband, with your wife. And so from this one story, we find four key essentials on how to receive God's miracle in your life today. In fact, we start off in Mark 6 where it says this, When Jesus saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them. And so he began teaching them. And I always love that idea of compassion. Jesus, no matter how busy he had been that day, no matter how much ministry he had accomplished, no matter how whipped he was from the sun, from the constant engaging with people, from the miracles, from all the different stuff, whenever a crowd gathered, it says he had compassion on them. He didn't say, I'm too busy. He didn't say, I'm too tired. He didn't say, come back tomorrow morning. He, he had compassion. And so he began to teach them. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came and said, This is a remote place. Send the people away so that they can go and buy something to eat. But Jesus says, You guys give them something to eat. The disciples started to freak out, a little bit of a paraphrase there, and they said this, that that would take eight months' wage of a man's wages. In other words, they're saying, Houston, we have a problem. We have a very large, very hungry crowd that hasn't eaten all day because they've been out in this desert listening to Jesus. They've been putting his teachings above their own welfare. We have a real problem here. What are we going to do? And God says, we do four things. 
And they're all taught here in this story. And one of the first things that God always encourages us to do, He says, I want you to admit that you have a need. And that's really the starting point for a lot of the things that we discuss, isn't it? To come to the table and say, God, this is where we are. And remember that imaginary table I keep talking about? It's putting our fears, putting our desires, putting our concerns, our worries, our stresses, the things that we need God to answer, putting them on that table so we can begin to heal and he can begin to address. And so if I want God to work in my life, one of the first things I've got to do is to admit that I need God to work in my life. Say, God, I need your help. Life's gotten too hard. I can't control this. And this seems like the easiest thing in the world. This should be the easiest thing in the world. But for so many of us, this is the most difficult step. Why? Because we don't like to admit our problems. We like to hide our problems. We like to cover up our problems. We like to blame other people for our problems. We like to pretend our problems don't exist. But this first principle of this story says that God often doesn't work in our life until you ask him to. He often doesn't save you until you ask him to. He says over and over in Scripture, as a result, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. In fact, over 20 times in just the New Testament, we are commanded to ask. And so I come to Jesus Christ. I say, God, I've got a major need in my life. It's beyond my ability. I need some intervention. I need a greater help. I need you in my life. And God so often wants to get us there because then... He gets the glory. Because then we see it as an answer to our prayer. And that's something we've manufactured, lucked into. Because God, more often than not, at least in Scripture, doesn't help us until we first admit our need for help. The problem with this all is that we don't do this very well. We see that the disciples didn't do this very well either in the story. Because first the disciples, we see they procrastinated. They put off dealing with the problem. Notice it says, by this time it was late in the day. So anybody could have figured out, right, that these people were going to get hungry at some time. I mean, to the disciples' credit, they might have just kept thinking, well, Jesus is just about done. You know, you ever been in a sermon like that? You're like, every day, every Sunday, Pastor, it's almost done. Oh, oh, you got another 20 points. What happened there? So it says, by this time, it was late in the day. They should have known. We're out here in the middle of the desert. There's no place to eat. There's no fast food chains. What's going to happen? A lot of people are going to pass out pretty soon because of hunger, because of the sun. But they just kept putting it off. And typically, we do this with our problems too, don't we? We delay. We procrastinate. We pretend it doesn't exist. We let it just kind of mount up for a little bit. We want to look the other way. But the truth is that procrastination only makes the problem worse. It's like putting off your homework until the last minute. My, my fifth grader did this, this this last week, and she stayed up to 11 o'clock finishing a project that she had like three weeks to do. Why? Why weren't we better parents in figuring this out? I don't know, but 11 o'clock it was. It's like putting off taxes until the last minute. Procrastination never solves any problem. What it does is usually makes the problem worse. And then they began to worry. And you know, we worry too about a whole lot of stuff. That's where the anxiety and the stress and the fear comes from. But here's a secret to worry. If you pray about your problems as much as you worry about your problems, you'll have a whole lot less to actually worry about. But we don't do that, do we? At least not all the time, at least not very well. And so we fret and we stew and we get anxious and we get stressed out, just like the disciples did in this story. They said, imagine the expense. It would take eight months of a man's wages 
They did a little cost analysis, and the anxiety went into overdrive. Jesus was asking them to actually solve this problem. I can imagine Peter and some of the other guys saying, Jesus, how are we going to do this? Feed 15,000, 20,000 people, right? How are we going to transport the food here? How are we going to keep it warm? Who's going to clean up the mess? How are we going to pay for the liability insurance? All those different things were going into their minds. Their minds seriously were going into overdrive because the need was immediate. The need needed to happen. The answer needed to happen now. And they had no solutions. But that what they had forgotten was who was standing there with them. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was standing right there with them. The, the guy whose concern turned water into wine they're freaking out, trying to come up with all these answers, looking for Colonel Sanders, right? When all the while the answer, Jesus, God himself, the one who created the heavens and the earth, spoke them into being, was standing right there. But we did this a lot too. We have a problem when we forget that God is there. We forget that God is right there with us. He said, I'll help you if you'll just come to me. But first I need you to admit that you have a need. Then he goes to the second part and he says... Step two, when I need a miracle, is that I need to assess what I already have to work with. In verse 38 it says, Jesus said, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five small loaves of bread and two fish. Why did Jesus do this? I mean, he's God, right? He could have rained down manna from heaven. He could have turned stones into bread for everybody just to pick up and eat right where they stood. But why would he say, Go and see what you've already got? I mean, clearly he already knew what he was going to do, but why say this? Because here's the second principle when you need a miracle in your life. You assess what it is that you have to work with. The second principle is that God always starts with what you've got. And so you take the energy that you've got and you give it to Him. You take the time that you've got and you give it to Him. You take the money that you've got and you give it to Him. You take the relationship that you have and you give it to Him. See, over and over, God says, I want you to evaluate what it is that I've given you to start with. And so we say, God, this is what I've got. We do an evaluation of it. In verse 36, Jesus says this, You give them something to eat. You feed them. I mean, how'd you like to be the disciple, standing there and looking at all these 20,000 people and saying, Jesus, boy, these guys are pretty hungry. You know, what are we going to do? And he turns to you and says, hey, would you solve this problem for me? Why don't you just get this done for me? That'd be fantastic. I'm a little tired. And you kind of sit there still looking at the 20,000 people going, what? I don't understand. This is humanly impossible. This is financially impossible. This is practically impossible. We can't do this. Have you ever asked God or ever said to God, God, this is impossible in my life? There's been a situation, a problem, an experience. You said, there's no way I can see you coming in on this. I know you created the heavens and the earth, but this is my relationship. I mean, this is way harder, more complex than that. Or I know, I know you parted the Red Sea, but this is a financial worry that I can't, I can't manufacture the result to. Has God ever asked you to do anything that's been impossible? If you've been a believer for any length of time, I'm sure he has. Why? Because God loves to ask his kids to do the impossible. Why? Because he wants to stretch our faith. He wants to test us. He wants you to see that he can be trustworthy. You know, if you never have to trust God for anything great then we never really have to trust him for anything, right? Because if it's always in this part where we can kind of control it, but it'd be great if he'd intervene, then we can always kind of rest easy. Our stress remains kind of low because we could, if God doesn't do it, we'll do it. But there's times in our life where God says, you can't do it, and will you trust me for more?
My guess is this next week you're going to have some problems come up in your life that you don't have the slightest idea are going to come up. And a crisis is a crisis mainly because it takes you by surprise. If you knew it was coming, you could have prepared for it. But here's the point. God knows the answer before you even know the problem. Let me say that again. God knows the answer even before we know the problem. And so he's not going to be surprised by it. I mean, think about that. He sees the beginning and the end always. He knows every problem that you're going to face in your entire life right now today. He already knows he's not going to be shocked. He's not going to be surprised. He's not blown away by it. And so you just come to him and you say, God, you knew this was coming. So obviously you know the answer even before I knew the problem. I come to him and I say, I am here. I admit that I have a need. Here's what I got to work with. A little talent, a little ability, a little wealth, a little faith. Here's what I got. And then God goes to the next thing and he says, I give whatever God whatever I have. So this is the third step to a miracle. Give God whatever you have. In the book of John, it tells us that in the story that this guy named Andrew, one of the disciples, found a little boy in the crowd who had brought a sack lunch. It wasn't much. It was five little barley loaves, two little muffins, or five little muffins and a couple of fish, probably dried sardines. Now, we had a little debate in Bible class whether the disciples took it from him or if it was just something that the boy offered up. We're going to assume from the context of all, all the stories that it's, it's something the boy offered up. And I'm sure that the crowd, in that crowd of fifteen to 20,000 people there that day, I'm sure somebody brought a better lunch. Right? Maybe somebody had caviar. I mean, I don't know. But the reality is somebody probably bought a better lunch. But this little boy got to be the hero of this story, not because he brought the best meal, but because he gave it to God. He gave what he had to Jesus. He said, here's what I've got. Here's the five rolls, the couple of fish tacos or whatever, right? And he said, here, Lord, you can have these. So he gave God what he had. And the Bible says Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and he blessed the food and he broke the loaves and he kept giving them, giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And so here's the third principle. God will use whatever I give him. Even, even the, the, five taco, or the two fish tacos and the, and the five subways, right? He'll, he'll use whatever it is that we give him. He'll take it and he'll use it because God likes to use ordinary things to do extraordinary things. He likes to use ordinary people right, to accomplish extraordinary tasks. And God used this little boy's generous heart to spark a miracle. And finally, and this is the hard one, we expect God to use it. I expect God to multiply whatever it is that I give him. Notice what happens in verse 42. This little boy brings his lunch of just a couple of loaves of five and five fish and says, everyone ate and had enough, right? What do you not have enough of in your life? I don't have enough time. God says then it means because it's, you're not giving it to me is why you need more time in your life. I don't have enough money. That means you're not giving it to God. I don't have enough relationships. It means you're not giving that area of your life to God. See, over and over, God says, give it to me and, and I will bless. Because whatever you totally give to God, he multiplies and he blesses it in return. In the text it says, everyone ate and had enough. And afterwards they collected 12 baskets full of leftovers. Can you imagine this kid going home to his mom? And mom looks at all this 12 baskets and she said, Jesus did what? And you did what? And you gave him your lunch and he did what? And, and by the way, mom, here's the 12 basketfuls of, of leftovers that Jesus gave you to take home. Would you believe your kid? You'd be thinking, did you steal this? I mean, what happened to all this kind of stuff? 
It sounds crazy. And yet God multiplied it. And God always makes sure that he does that. Because God has set it, that, set it up that way in the world. There's a principle called sowing and reaping. The Bible says whatever you sow, whatever you give away, you're going to reap. Money, reputation, anything. But here's the secret. You always reap back more than you sow. And so if you criticize people, guess what? You can get more criticism back. And if you judge other people, guess what? You're going to get more judged back. You always get back more than you put in, either positively or negatively. And that's just a law of life. It's a law of the universe. So God says, you give me whatever you need more of and watch me multiply it. It's the principle of sowing and wheat reaping. But the key to all of this is that God likes to do miracles through people. God could have just rained down bread on all those people. He could have turned a bunch of stones into bread just laying there on the ground or done any other kind of thing that he wanted to. Why? Because he's God. I mean, bread could have just materialized in their hand. But instead he works through people. He works through this little boy who gave his lunch. He worked through the disciples who passed it out. He often waits, right? I think we often wait for God to do something for us. But God, almost all the time, is waiting to do something through us. See, the story of the feeding of the, of the thousands of people, is, I think, is very appropriate for St. Mark today. We live in a county of literally millions and millions of hungry people. Every week, 297 of them show up to one of our three services on campus saying, Feed me. Feed me spiritually. And God has said to this congregation, this family, you need to feed them. We can say, Lord, how in the world could we possibly feed all these people, all these spiritually needy people in North Phoenix, let alone all of Maricopa County? How could we possibly do that? We need a miracle. And our church does need a miracle. In the days ahead, we're going to need a huge miracle. We're attempting to to continue or to follow where God has been leading us and build the next phase of our property here at St. Mark. And so to prepare us this week, we're kicking off a spiritual growth campaign called First Steps. And I guess the reality is that we're at a historical hinge point in our congregation. We can, this is really a, a historical part. We can either go forward or we can go backwards at this point. And so I kind of wanted to give you a heads up of what is to come. In the next 40 days, we're going to have a First Steps campaign. And one of the main purposes of this campaign is to help us grow spiritually and spiritual maturity. Because to be honest, that's the passion of my heart. That you grow in spiritual maturity because I've always been more interested in building people than I have been in building buildings. We've never really been into building buildings here at St. Mark. We've been in this one for the last 50 years. We've clearly never been about building buildings. But we are into building people, and that's why we've lasted 50 years. We want to build the spiritual growth in your life. And right now, to do that, with all the people that God is bringing us, we just need more room in the end. And this is a great first step. And to be honest, I'm excited about it. And I hope as you look at it and hear more about it, you get excited about it too. But as we close this morning, I I just want you to do two things. First is I want you to start praying. God, help me grow spiritually in the next 40 days. Help me grow closer to you. Help me grow in my understanding of, of who you are. Help me grow in my spiritual maturity, what it means to be a disciple of you. Pray that. I'm serious. I want to grow spiritually in the next 40 days. And then second thing, I want you to pray that God does a miracle in this family. I want you to pray that he does a miracle in this church. And then we're going to watch and we're going to see what he does. God calls us to try. He calls us to trust. He calls us to pray. And he says he takes care of the rest. So for the next 40 days, that's what I want us to do. And with that, all God's people said...
Amen. Amen.